iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, everybody, it's Danny. Um, just a little morsel for you. So our friends at Secrets of the Side Hustle, which is, of course, a, another podcast from The Times, our sister podcast, if you will. Um, they had a really interesting episode recently. It is an interview with Tessa Clark, who is the founder of... Olio, a food sharing app. So, you know, it's kind of in this techie world and we thought you guys might enjoy it. A little a little nibble in the middle of the week. Um, so that is what you're about to hear right now. And we, of course, will be back later this week with our standard fare. But in the meantime, enjoy this episode of Secrets of the Side Hustle, um, this interview with Tessa Clark of Olio. Bon appetit. I'm Laura Jackson and welcome to Secrets of the Side Hustle, the podcast from the Sunday Times Star that's all about phenomenal female founders and how they turn their passions from a bit on the side to a thriving business. From beauty to manufacturing, tech to finance and more. On this show, we get the ins and outs, ups and downs of setting up your own company. You can subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can do this via whatever podcast app you normally use. For this episode, I sat down with Tessa Clark, co-founder of Olio. Originally from North Yorkshire, she attended Stanford Business School and had a successful career in the corporate world before starting Olio with co-founder Sasha. I could go on and on about how interesting I found Tessa and her business, but you'd probably rather hear it from her. So here she is. Tessa, so nice to meet you. Hi, lovely to meet you too. I am really um, excited about talking to you about your business because I think it's amazing. Um, but for people that don't know about Olio, what is it? What, what do you do? So Olio is an app that exists to tackle the enormous problem of food waste, but also waste more generally in our homes. And how we do that is by connecting people with their neighbours so you can give away rather than throw away your spare food and other household items. I mean, it sounds like a simple idea when you explain it like that. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it's absolutely not. But um, where did the idea originate from? Where Did you have kind of a spark moment where you're like, there's a gap in the market, I need to create something? I did. Yes. So this was about six years ago now. And I was living with my family uh, in Switzerland and we were moving back to the UK. And on moving day, the removal men said to me that I had to throw away all of our uneaten food. Now, small kind of backstory. I'm a farmer's daughter, spent the first kind of 20 odd years of my life living and doing an awful lot of work on my parents' farm. And as a result of that, I have developed a pathological hatred for food waste. So when they told me to throw this food away clearly that is something that I was not prepared to do so much the irritation I stopped packing with them and instead I bundled up my newborn baby and toddler and I set out onto the streets clutching this food hoping to find someone to give it to and um and that was the point where I just thought wow this is crazy the lengths I'm going to to avoid throwing away perfectly good food and at that time I'd been working in the digital space for probably about 10 years I knew there was an app for everything and I couldn't believe there wasn't a simple app where I could just share my spare food with a neighbor. 
I mean, it's shocking the amount of food that we throw away a year and kind of when researching to talk to you today, I I mean, I knew it was bad, but on average, a UK family throws away 800 pounds worth of food a year. That's 15 billion pound of food that's going into landfill. That's really scary. That's exactly sort of the journey that my co-founder Sasha and I went through. So I'd had this sort of slightly crazy idea for a neighbor to neighbor food sharing app. Most people I told about it thought that perhaps I'd been on maternity leave for a little bit too long and <laughs> need to get Rude. back to work. <laughs> yeah. uh, baby brain had taken, you know, made, you know, taken me over. But um, the first thing Sasha and I did, so Sasha immediately got it. And the first thing we did was to research the problem of food waste. And we uncovered exactly that. So, but actually dialing back a little bit, the first thing we discovered was that globally, a third of all the food we produce each year gets thrown away. Which a third. Is- Third, yeah. And that's worth over a trillion dollars. And then alongside that, we have 800 million people who go to bed hungry every night, who keep fed on just one quarter of the food that we waste in the Western world. And then the real shocker was the environmental impact of food waste, because I think it's very natural and intuitive. And we certainly thought that, you know, food is natural. So how bad can food be for the environment? But what we discovered was that if it were to be a country, food waste would be the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions after the USA and China. And the reason for that is because a landmass larger than China is used every single year to grow food that's never eaten. So that is land that has been deforested, indigenous populations displaced, species driven to extinction, a quarter of humanity's fresh water is used to grow food that's never eaten. That food then goes on this enormously long supply chain. And then when a third of it gets thrown away, the vast majority of it ends up in landfill. And what we learned was that when food decomposes without access to oxygen, it creates methane. And methane is about 25 times more deadly than CO2. And so having been on that sort of voyage of discovery and horror, uh, Sasha and I became completely committed to launching Olio and to trying to solve that problem. So once you've kind of discovered all of this, like you say, you become incredibly committed to making a change. Yeah. How do you go about making that change? (laughs) So we went through a pretty methodical process. So we did that desk research. The next thing we did was a market research survey because we knew that on paper, this was a really big problem, but we didn't necessarily know that anyone cared about it. And We wanted to find out if people did or didn't care. And so we pulled together a simple research survey via SurveyMonkey. We shared it via lots of different Facebook groups. And we got almost, I think, 400 responses, so enough to be statistically representative. And the key data point that we found in that was that one in three people told us that they were physically pained throwing away good food. So that was another sort of tick in the box. It's a big problem on paper. People care about it. This is sort of a mainstream problem. Uh, but that didn't mean to say that people would take the next step in our hypothesis, which was that they would share food with a stranger. And we wanted to try and find a way to test that without sinking our life savings, building an app that almost certainly no one would want to use. And so what we came up with was a proof of concept using WhatsApp. So we reached out to 12 people who'd done that market research survey who said that they were physically pained throwing away good food. We said, we're going to pop you onto this WhatsApp group with bunch of people who live near you. You don't know them. We don't know them. We don't know you. So, um, but let's kind of pop us all on this WhatsApp group. And then in the next two weeks, if you've got any spare food, here's some people living nearby who might like it. And 
we waited with bated breath for I think sort of you know 36 or 48 agonizing hours <laughs> to see if anyone would share anything into this whatsapp group and they did um thankfully someone posted something in and then over the rest of that two weeks, we actually had quite a bit of sharing take place via that WhatsApp group. And afterwards, we met with all those people face to face in sort of random coffee shops. And they gave us some really helpful feedback. They said, you absolutely have to build this. It only needs to be slightly better than a WhatsApp group, which is perhaps the most valuable advice we've, we've kind of had on our journey to date. And then three, they said, how can I help? And that is the was really the genesis of what has today become our ambassador program. I mean, you launched the app, didn't you? I think it was five months it took to, to yeah. make. It, it, it took us from the day we decided to work together on Olio and kind of incorporated the company. It was five months exactly to the day later that we launched the first version of the app. So this whole process that I've described to you, we, we did in, in five months. I mean, that is incredible to have an idea and bring it to market within five months was that quite a stressful time in yes. your life <laughs> <laughs> yeah um in, in a word yes um but the reason for the really accelerated time scales was both Sasha and I were on maternity leave and we said to ourselves we've got until so we incorporated on the 9th of February and we said we've got until the 31st December this year to make a go of this because if we don't our, our own money runs out and we have to go back and get proper jobs and we always knew that Olio was the kind of model that wouldn't be able to be profitable quickly. So we would have to raise financing. And so working backwards from that, we knew that we kind of, if we wanted to have financing kind of in the bank by the end of the year, then that meant we had to have our product launched by the beginning of the summer. When it comes to setting up your own business, what's in a name? Is it really that important? For Olio, it definitely was. I do remember we had a bit of a debate as to whether we wanted a name that sort of said what it did on the tin. So something like the Food Exchange Network, for example, or did we want something like Olio where we could kind of create our own brand? And I can remember we went sort of, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, Apple, Food Exchange Network. Nah, <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, Apple, Olio. Yes. Um and, and I think that was absolutely kind of the right decision because obviously Olio has since expanded beyond food. And so if we sort of called ourselves the Food Exchange Network, then that would have really sort of hampered our ability to grow and develop. And we really loved Olio because Olio means a miscellaneous collection of things, which if you look on the app, that is what you'll see. And then we also really like the two O's. They're very symbolic of the planet, of sharing, circular economy, community. And also we thought the word sounded quite aspirational. And for us, we knew it was super important. It had to be seen as something slightly aspirational to un to be able to unlock the mainstream. Um, so talking a bit about Sasha, she is your co-founder. Where did you meet her and how do you split your roles within the business? So Sasha and I met over 15 years ago now, which is aging us, <laughs> um, doing our MBAs at Stanford Business School. And... When we graduated, we both moved back to London and we were sort of young girls around town who enjoyed partying and, and misbehaving. Um, we then sort of grew up a little bit and something we did, which I think was a really, really important thing and that set us up really well, was pretty much on day one, we sat down and we decided how to divvy up all of the functions. And we just went through every single function that an organization has and we 
agreed that now was not the time for one of us to sort of have a go at doing something we didn't know much about, but we'd always fancied. Now was the time where we needed to kind of play to any strengths that we might have. And so I sort of took on the CEO role. And so I'm responsible for strategy, for product, for fundraising, customer support, PR. Uh, and Sasha took the COO role. So she's responsible for everything to do with kind of building our network of users. So owning kind of marketing, social media, also managing our retailer clients and partners through our Food Waste Heroes program. And she also does finance and HR as well and legal. Have you ever had any disagreements in your time working together? Yes and no. So both of us are super conflict averse people. And so, and we like to be happy. So the minute we get anywhere near sort of 5% unhappy, we just have to talk to each other about it. So we just kind of very little and often, but really importantly, we also agreed that each of us were sort of in control of our own functions and we were the decision maker for that function but that any sort of major decisions or changes of direction we would always talk to the other about and that's worked really really well so both of us love the fact that it almost feels like we've cloned ourselves you know we could be in two places at the same time we can be in two different meetings taking decisions uh, it's really really brilliant and we have really empowered each other to just crack on yeah i mean i gosh i love working with people i don't think i could ever be I don't think I could be a solo player in terms of that decision-making process. I always need reassurance. And it sounds like that's the kind of relationship that you have with Sasha, where, like you say, you've just kind of cloned each other, but it's nice to be able to get that. I I completely agree. You know, if I'm being honest, I wouldn't have had the courage to found Olio by myself. But the minute you've got a partner in crime, suddenly everything feels doable. And suddenly you're not just one crazy person. (laughs) You're, You're two. According to a report from FlexJobs, remote working has grown by 91% in the past 10 years. And that's without taking the last year into consideration. Olio has been a remote-based business since its inception. And I asked Tessa to tell me why. So for us, it was born out of necessity, really. So we were both mothers with young kids. We didn't have the time, nor the inclination, nor the finances to be paying for and then commuting to a fancy office that quite frankly, neither of us wanted to be in. And we were able to work so efficiently and so effectively at times that suited us remotely that it honestly never crossed our minds. What we have since discovered is that being a remote first business has been a real secret weapon for us because we have been able to tap into a caliber and also diversity of talent that we would just never have got if we had insisted that people had to commute into the center of London five days a week. So we're super, super proud of how diverse our team is in terms of gender and ethnicity and neurodiversity on socioeconomic backgrounds. On pretty much every metric, we've got a really, really diverse team. And I think that's because we've got this remote first way of working. And let's just talk about the fact that this was a side hustle for you at the beginning. You were on maternity leave, as you said, with your second child. How did you manage your time when starting a new business? With difficulty, I think is the honest answer. That first year of founding Olio was hands down the most challenging year that 
I have had. So I had a newborn, I had a toddler. I was living in a house that we had just bought and just moved into and was a complete and utter wreck. So we were kind of living out of one room with no heating and, you know, just covered in dust absolutely everywhere. Builders switching off the Wi-Fi when I you know, least, least needed it on launch day. In fact, I'll never forget that. And then he called my husband oh, for that. Oh no, that is just the worst. Yeah, yeah. On, honestly, it was, it was 9th of July going live in the app store. <laughs> and, and the builders cut off the wi-fi but yes i was also needing to sort of keep cash coming in so i was consulting as well uh and then just you know the straw that broke the camel's back was that my husband and his wisdom had decided to buy a great dane puppy which was not house trained so it was all feeling a bit much um that is by the way the i have to say i have a dog and i have a toddler and a newborn and the worst thing for me is the dog yeah. so whenever when anyone ever says to me oh we're gonna get a puppy and they've got kids i'm like no. why they're a nightmare why? why no and and all i'm just gonna say is great dane style you know house training is not what you want when you come down the stairs first thing in the morning so um yeah that that was an extremely challenging year plus I was doing the consulting work as well to kind of bring money in and I can remember sort of my husband just going crazy at me because I'd be sort of boiling the kettle and would be using that kind of two minutes to do something kind of do some work on my phone because I needed that two minutes um so yeah it was absolutely crazy I, I think sort of my two big hacks to making everything work is one remote working that just makes everything manageable. And I'm also able to be super, super present in my kids' lives, which I just wouldn't trade for the world. I, I feel so privileged to be able to, to have that. And then the second hack is I always schedule some form of exercise, whether it be a walk or a run or a bike ride into my working day, because it's just not going to happen if I leave it until the end of the day. And I've also learn to stop apologizing for it and recognize that actually I'm doing the most important thing I can do for my business right now because it enables me to be healthy and to continue. But also I've realized I do my very best work when I'm exercising because I, I always listen to podcasts and I'm just constantly sort of emailing myself ideas and inspiration and notes and thoughts. And I, I get real clarity and have real breakthroughs when I'm exercising. Yeah, I think that's such a good take home for our listeners, giving yourself that time just to be alone with your thoughts, because actually that does increase imagination and a creative process. And to not feel guilty about it. I think that's the most important thing, because sometimes people will say, OK, I'm going to do that. But then they feel guilty about it. And I've just completely flipped my mindset. But we're British. We start every text message with, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. You can find all the latest news and advice for founders starting and growing their businesses at the Times Enterprise Network. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash business forward slash enterprise dash network, where you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So how do you as a business make money? Great question. So we started generating revenues a couple of years ago through our Food Waste Heroes program. So we now have 25,000 trained volunteers and that's growing every week. And so they are people who we recruit from our community and we train them online on our food safety management system and then match them with their local stores, which could be a supermarket like a Tesco or a Pret-a-Manger or a corporate canteen. And the Food Waste Heroes on their allotted time and date will pop out the house across the road. They'll go pick up all of the unsold or unserved food. They'll take it home. They'll add it to the app. Within minutes, their earlier neighbors are requesting it. Minutes later, they're picking it up. And that takes that food from having been considered a waste stream in the store to instead, one to two hours later, fully redistributed into the homes of the local community, being eaten and enjoyed. And at the moment, businesses are paying a waste contractor to take that food off to landfill or at best anaerobic digestion or perhaps livestock feed and instead they're now paying us to make sure that that food is being eaten and then we've recently introduced a what's called the freemium business model which is a really common one in the world of apps whereby a small subset of your user base can opt to subscribe to the app in order to unlock extra features i I just can't believe that From what you just told me, the supermarkets are paying people just to take it away and put it into landfill. Yeah, well, and and here in the UK, we have 8.4 million people living in food poverty. And that's that's pre-COVID data, by the way. So, you know, we all know that those numbers have sadly only gone up. So it's absolutely outrageous. um, And we want people to know about that so that they can start asking questions of these businesses which mm. is, why are you not redistributing this food to the local community and i think that we're all feeling a lot more confident now and we have access to ask those questions and have them either be seen or hopefully be totally. answered totally totally we've got social media and you can always ask the store staff as well because they then feed that back up to the powers that be and you know and i've got to give sort of credit actually to tesco and also to pret manger in this space who are two of our um, earliest and, and largest clients who've really worked incredibly well with us to ensure that food doesn't go to waste from their local stores something we talk a lot about on this show is how to secure investment and you can listen back to earlier episodes in the series to find some really helpful tips on this Olio is similar to a lot of companies in that it had outside cash to help it grow, but it's a little different and that it also took on what's called impact investment. If you're not sure what that is, don't worry, I wasn't either. Tessa can explain. So our impact investors want everything that our regular investors want in terms of the the pitch deck and and the business model and the financials and all that kind of stuff. But in addition to that, they want to understand how we generate a positive impact on people and on planet. And so in the case of Olio, we are able to measure every single week how many um, tons of of CO2 emissions that we're saving as a result of this food being eaten rather than thrown away. We can measure... Uh, how many liters of water we're saving we can measure how many doorstep connections that we're making and they use those metrics as a core part of their decision making and they want to invest in businesses that are having a high 
positive impact. How important is finding the right investor for your business? It's absolutely critical and it's really important to stress that actually the venture capital route is not the right route for the vast majority of businesses um, because the VC model broadly is a hit space business. I, they just need one or two in their portfolio to become a Facebook um, and that then delivers all of the returns and they to a certain extent sort of don't care about all the other ones that, that don't make it. So you have to understand what sort of journey you're going on with the venture capital route. And it has to be all about kind of growing to scale as quickly as possible. Mm. Really, really important is getting investors who, two things really, one who really buy into your mission. So we've always looked for what I call conviction investors. These are people who they absolutely get our mission and I can tell how they get our mission because they can't help but share a personal anecdote about how much they hate food waste or things that they've done to avoid it. And I know immediately they get it. Um, so you need sort of what we call conviction investors who are obsessed with your mission. And then you also need people you've got good chemistry with people that are just sensible, practical, good communicators, easy to work with, not going to micromanage you. And that's really, really important because the right investors can propel your business to the stratosphere and the wrong investors can destroy your business. The word of caution I would give would be to really avoid inexperienced investors and also sometimes kind of angel investors. You know, they put in five or 10 or 20,000 pounds, which for them is an enormous sum of money and, and quite understandably. But, you know, you need to grow your business. You, you probably need to bring in a million of investment or 10 million of investment. And so you're just sort of thinking and working in a very different way. And you can't sort of handhold every single angel investor who's given you five, 10, 15, 20 grand. Um, and they can be very time consuming. And ironically, the investors who have more money are generally a bit more kind of hands-off can be a bit lower maintenance than um, some of the investors with, with kind of smaller tickets. That's not always the case, but it's just a really important watch out. And it's kind of well documented, isn't it? That only 1% of capital actually goes to female founded founders, yes. businesses, which is absolutely ridiculous. Is that something that you felt that you were up against when you were fundraising? Yes. I, I would love to say no, but the sad truth is yes. And also I was painfully aware of those statistics. 1% of all VC goes to female founded businesses, 89% to male founded businesses and the Delta to mixed teams. So it was really daunting and intimidating odds to be going up against. And some of the key things that we did and, and what we learned from, the first thing was that Sasha and I have sort of decent credentials. You know, we've been to Stanford Business School. We've got some uh, well-known brands that we've worked for. And actually, we sort of pulled to the very front of our deck a slide which had those sort of stamps of approval on it. And I think that was really important because it was a position to those male investors. You need to take us seriously. Um, and that was something we did specifically because we were two women trying to raise money. And so we really wanted to kind of anchor that conversation. And then the second thing was we watched a video by an amazing lady called Dana Kanzi. She wrote TED this, Talks. She did a TED Talk. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she had also written about it in the Harvard Business Review. And she analyzed you know, hundreds of 
startup founders pitching and the investors and looked at kind of who got investment and, and what the dynamics were. And what she discovered was that female founders are asked what she called prevention questions, which is all about the downside. You know, what happens if Google comes in and decides to destroy you? Are you sure you can really afford that? What happens if you don't grow this fast? You know, all the kind of negative questions, so the prevention questions, and the male founders are asked all the promotion questions, which is how fast can you go? How big can this be? You know, the investors are really start co-creating this future with them. And we experienced that directly. You know, I, I'll never forget. I'd sort of just watched that video and then ping into my inbox came an email feedback from an investor. And I was like, wow, that is prevention question, prevention question, prevention question, prevention question. And we felt that very acutely. But her key tip is that you answer a prevention question with a promotion answer. And that's how you sort of try and get around it. I think the other tip as well that I would give is to seek out female investors, seek out investment firms that when you look at their about us page, it's not just a whole bunch of pale male and stale faces staring back at you. There's a really diverse team of people because in our experience, when we pitch to female investors, we have a 75% plus conversion rate. When I pitch to male investors, I have maybe a five or 10% conversion rate. So in our experience, and, and I've spoken to many other female founders about this as well, sort of your, just your probability of success pitching to diverse people is just much, much higher. One of the biggest challenges for any business is scalability. What's the best way to grow your company? How rigidly should you stick to your original business plan? Tessa told me exactly how they did it with Olio and gave us a few tips for other wannabe moguls out there. We always had enormous ambitions for Olio. We knew that we wanted hundreds of millions, if not billions of people using Olio, because if humanity would stand any chance whatsoever of mitigating the worst effects of the climate crisis, it was really simple. That's what we had to do. But um, we have had many uh, plans and strategies and ideas sort of along that journey. And I'm sure if I were to kind of look back at, at the documents that we first wrote pre-launch, you know, six years ago, it would be laughable. And the reason for that is because we have really embraced what's called the lean startup uh, philosophy. And I highly, highly recommend the book, The Lean Startup by Eric Rees to anyone um who is, who is interested in this, but essentially that model says you want to get some product out into the market. You then want to measure the feedback and, and, and the impact that it's having. And then you want to kind of test and iterate and learn as quickly as possible. So you have that kind of test, measure, learn loop, and you just need to go through that as fast as is humanly possible. And so when we first founded Olio, did we have a vision of the Food Waste Heroes program with thousands of trained volunteers collecting and redistributing food from local businesses? Uh, no. <laughs> but very, very early on, did we find ourselves with a bit of a conundrum, which was that our early adopters hated food waste, therefore didn't generate any. And the businesses that we'd hoped would use Olio of their own accord were far too busy running their core operations to want to mess about with an app. And so we had to problem solve for that real time. And we said, well, why don't we take these people who've got time but no food waste and match them with the businesses that have food waste and no time? And that was how the Food Waste Heroes program came about. When you're building a business, you're kind of at point A and you know you need to get to sort of point Z. 
but the key thing is you have to have the mental agility to sort of um, twist and turn along the path and take different paths to get to your end goal. It's really dangerous actually if you if you become really sort of wedded to this particular solution or this particular approach in in the face of, of data that's perhaps telling you that's not the best idea. How many, I mean, how many users have you got now? We are about to pass um, an exciting milestone of 4 million people having joined Uh, Olio and they've given away over 20 million portions of food, which has had the environmental impact equivalent of taking 58 million car miles off the road, which I think is close to sort of driving all the way to Mars and back. Uh, And we've saved 3 billion litres of water. That is absolutely amazing. Like that is incredible. It is. And what's most exciting though, is that we're doing you know, 0.01% of our full potential. So just imagine if we really can get everyone on mm. Olio sharing and giving away their spare food and other household items instead of throwing them away, then you know, obviously our, our impact will be absolutely enormous. As you can tell, I'm a huge fan of Tessa's business and so impressed by all of the good it's done already. As it turns out, I'm in very good company. Meghan Markle mentioned you as a force for change. That is incredible. How did that happen? I have to say it was an amazing, amazing shock. So... The backstory on that, and I still don't know how this happened, actually, was that myself and a small group, I think there were about five other people who were working in the kind of food waste and and food redistribution space were invited to Kensington Palace to meet with um, Meghan Markle. So I kind of had uh, an hour with her, which was just a, a phenomenal, phenomenal experience and got to share with her the work that we're doing and the impact that we're having and that we want to have. And then fast forward uh, a couple of months later, uh, her team reached out and let me know that I was going to be included in the September issue for her Force for Change. And um, yeah, it was it was an amazing, an amazing experience. And she also wrote a really gorgeous uh, thank you note to me and gave me a little gift afterwards to thank me for participating. No way. What was the gift? It was this beautiful little um, sort of uh, note, leather-bound uh, notebook. Thing is, I um, I know whenever I meet people, I know if they like get Olio or not, and I could tell through the conversations that we had, and we had a little chat together afterwards that she just got it. I was like, oh, she's a total Olio girl. Absolutely, you need to take it over to LA then now. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Next stop, LA. <laughs> This is the part of the show where we get our guests to set a question and throw it forward to the upcoming one. We'll get Tessa's question in just a minute, but first, here's what Avila, the founder of inclusive and diverse greeting cards company, Avila Diana asked. What are you doing to improve diversity and inclusion within your organization? That's a great question, such an important question. Um, So our number one value as a company is inclusive. We want Olio to be for a billion people. And so it needs to be built by people who reflect a billion people. And as I touched on earlier on, the fact that we've always been a remote first business means that we have an incredibly diverse team across any metric that you choose. And we measure um, our our diversity very carefully as a team and also uh, as a community. And then we talk about it. 
we we talk about it as a team um and we also have an employee satisfaction survey where we get feedback from our team about how well we're living up against each of our company values and then we've also had a voice and, and tried to be kind of you know a positive part of the conversations for example around black lives matter so i i wrote a couple of blog posts outlining sort of what olio was doing um specifically to try and be an anti-racist company and um in through those blog posts i kind of shared how we think about diversity and inclusion so it's something that's really really close to our hearts and um tessa what's your question for our next guest so my question is what are you doing to play a role in helping to solve the climate crisis before you go tessa just one last question what does the future look like for olio well um as i've said before we're, we're sort of dreaming big and bold we really do want a billion olioers by 2030 we want the world connected so that our most precious resources are given away not thrown away we want to connect people with our neighbors so we stop sort of ripping stuff out of the planet and using it for five percent of its life and tossing it into landfill and instead get a sharing and reusing all the incredible resources we already have in our local communities amazing thank you so much not only has this been brilliant for the business side of things but just so informative in ways that we can help our planet amazing well thank you for having me on You can download the Olio app, that's O-L-I-O, from the App Store, Google Play, or wherever you normally get your apps from. You can also follow them on Instagram, search O-L-I-O dot app. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Just do it on whatever podcast app you normally use. That's it for this episode. Join me again next week, where I'll be joined by one of the Omama founders, Shannon. listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone 